This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm Gene Demby, and you are listening to Code Switch from NPR. So y'all know we love books at Code Switch. You know, they help us explore the world and sharpen our ideas and understand ourselves. That might be especially true for the books we read when we're really young. I remember when I was nine and I had to read uh, The Lion, The Witch in the Wardrobe, the book that is a giant propaganda piece for Turkish Delights. Oh, and it's also about, you know, Christianity or whatever. Anyway, today we're talking to an author who has thought really hard about the image of the world they want to present to young people. Their name is Kaysen Callender. Today, Kaysen is the author of a whole bunch of middle school and YA books. In fact, we're actually talking to Kaysen as part of a collaboration between NPR and the Library of Congress National Book Festival. But before Kaysen was a famous book author, there were a kid in St. Thomas in the Caribbean writing fan fiction. It used to be primarily for Harry Potter, which is a really difficult subject for me. Difficult because Kaysen is trans and non-binary. And as y'all probably know, J.K. Rowling uh, has said some janky stuff about people who are trans and not binary, and she's been doing it for years. It's a whole thing. But Kaysen says back in the day, the Harry Potter books were a big deal for them because they... Taught so much of our generation to have even any empathy period for people who are different. I mean, I would disagree that they do that for the, the house elves. I mean, like, everyone's going to, you know... Anyway... That's what Kaysen is hoping to do, trying to get people to have empathy for people who are different. Their books all feature black LGBTQ protagonists learning how to love themselves. And that's something we all need to do. And those characters are doing all kinds of growing up along the way. Their latest YA book, Felix Ever After, is a high school romantic dramedy that centers a black trans boy named Felix. And y'all, there's so much drama in this book. I'm reading like, wow, this is this is a lot. It's given it's given like free form. You know what I mean? There's catfishing, luxury, penthouse apartments, a bully who makes Cruella DeVille look like a softy. But something happens with that bully that I'm not gonna spoil for y'all. But you know, teenage drama. So I had to ask, was your high school life this dramatic? Oh, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> not I remember um... as I was reading it, I was like, oh, this is like this is like a, a, a freeform show, like like yeah. the, <laughs> when there's sort of this whole dead naming uh, yeah. and really, you know, traumatic moment. I'm like, oh, these characters are super villains. Like, I was wondering if you were pulling from your, perhaps pulling from your own experience. No, I mean, what is actually really sad about that is that I actually have gotten some trans people who've reached out to say that someone did something similar, which is oh, wow. horrific. Um, but in terms of, like, besides that just kind of like the general like drama and what a lot of people like to say like messiness of it all is you know purely entertainment that's not something I (laughs) (laughs) experienced when I was young you weren't a messy teenager I was too quiet and shy I think I also write um uh, what's the word what I would what I kind of like wish my life had been so I really wish you know I only uh, even understood my own gender identity when I was like 25 so uh, Felix is kind of like wish fulfillment. Like I really wish I had discovered my gender identity when I was um, his age, and I was able to like celebrate myself and have like all these 
amazing, like glamorous friends in New York, you know, that was more of like a wish fulfillment fantasy, which is what I think also makes it a little more entertaining. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was wondering about that because one of the things as I was reading was, um, so Felix is from, originally from Bed-Stuy, moved to Harlem. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's like moving around in this way that is like (laughs) unfettered, like for a teenager and granted, like, I know some teenagers who grew up in New York, and they were some of them were kind of feral, but like just <laughs> the um, the the kind of spaces that Felix can move in, um, these really rich spaces, right, which is so different from the way he grew up, um, seems like it could only happen if he were like in, you know, an elite private school. You know, I know that was your experience, right? I mean, that you went to a, a private school. You were not nowhere near where he was in terms of um, understanding your identity. But did you did you have that kind of like just physical agency in other ways? Like, could you just kind of come and go as you wanted? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I was very I was super isolated. Like on St. Thomas, um, my biggest gripe was like I'm surrounded by water, so I can't even run away if I wanted to. I felt so like claustrophobic, so isolated. So um, and uh, again, like this was really I think that's what. Uh, I love a lot about YA in particular also is that there's some things that are of course like realistic but for me a lot of the entertainment is in the kind of like wish fulfillment and just kind of like writing about what I wish my life had been like as a teenager and then getting to watch teenagers today respond with I wish my life was like that also in a kind of like a almost freeing way because for Felix it was kind of like a just do it just do what there was like a theme of like just do what it is that you want like be free Mm -hmm. Um, And kind of like hoping that that um, does resonate with younger readers. But then also having moments where it's like there are teenagers that say this is my life right now and kind of being amazed by that. (laughs) And watching. And some teenagers will get into like fights with adults over it sometimes. I've tried to like stay away from it, but just be like, well, no, I, I actually do do this. You're trying to say that this isn't realistic, but this is my life right now. And trying to. um, Yeah, that's amazing to me. So you have these online communities of YA readers um, that are having some really intense discussions about, you know, representation in fiction and also about morality, right? Um, And I'm curious how you interact with the responses to your work when it comes to these uh, questions around representation of trans and queer youth, especially when so much of this is about your personal story, right? You said you're bringing a lot of your own ideas and traumas, frankly, Mm -hmm. to this. I wonder how you metabolize those discussions oh this is a very complicated question because um okay yeah Yeah, a lot of these i mean these conversations are so necessary um a lot of those conversations are what started we need diverse books for example and a Mm -hmm. lot of different kind of like actionable movements that are creating real change and i think because of all of that that's when you started to see books like children of blood and bone all these like groundbreaking books that um we're just and the hate you give that we're just not given the space and chance to succeed before the platform to succeed before. So all those conversations are necessary to even have our stories seen and heard. They're necessary for the protection of children. So if we're having conversations about what is potentially harmful in representation, what stereotypes have always continued, we need to be mindful of what we can do to um, end those stereotypes and those harmful representations so that children can actually be seen for the first time in a healthy way. Um, So all of that is necessary and very groundbreaking. Um, 
I think that on the other hand, it can become uh, a bit like of a life of its own, where if you're, and it, I think it's also very individual, it depends on the individual, but for me personally, I felt like I was starting to get sucked into that so much into those conversations so much that it was taking away from my own kind of like sense of joy and even like energy and time from writing itself. So while I think that those conversations are necessary and they need to continue, um, personally for me, I've had to take a major step back from online engagement period Mm. um, and including these conversations so that I can focus on myself and my own health and my own what makes me happy. And do you feel that part of that is because you are such a like a visible trans author, right, in the white space that there is much more riding on your point of view and and what you're putting out in the world in your books? Um, you know, I don't think so, and I hope not. I think that there are a lot more trans writers and non-binary writers who have been having their books published recently, and I don't want to be the only one ever. Hmm. I'm tired of mm-hmm. being the only one. Sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so it's been great to see that there are more authors. I don't want to have that pressure on me for only my voice, because as many trans people as there are, there are trans perspectives. So my experience in Felix Ever After or in any of my other books that I have written about a trans protagonist is going to be my experience. And that might not necessarily resonate with another person who is trans or non-binary. And I don't want that to be the expectation either. Hmm. You say that you've had to step away from those spaces, you know, just for your well-being and because, you know, it was like not productive. What was your relationship to those spaces like before people knew who you were as a writer? Because you you said you were writing fan fiction, so you were in, obviously, online spaces writing fiction. But how did that sort of your increasing prominence change your relationship to these spaces? Well, first the increasing prominence meant more followers, which Mm -hmm. meant more um, eyes, which meant little uh, space to make mistakes. And I think that Mm -hmm. that, for me, is the biggest issue that I personally have had with online spaces recently um, for the community is that every human will make a mistake, but it becomes more of an issue of you're not allowed to make mistakes, and that kind of almost takes away the humanity of authors um, and of people who have larger followers where you're not even given a chance to really take accountability. Um, I think that that's where the focus should lie. I think that there's more of a focus on kind of like shaming and the entertainment of picking apart other people and of saying like you made a mistake and we refuse to forgive you and feeling like we're empowered by the refusal of forgiveness versus um, actually taking all of that energy and putting it into accountability Um, And accountability and shame are different, where with accountability, when someone makes a mistake, the focus on correcting that mistake and apologizing and fixing it so that we can move on together as a community, um, I feel is more important than saying you made a mistake and you're not allowed to even attempt to fix it. Mm -hmm. Is there anything about those places that you miss Um, I miss being able to interact in a fun way with other writers, with other readers, um, just like in a kind of like lighthearted banter what we're talking about with like our favorite movies and TV and that sort of thing. But yeah, even (laughs) I remember um, talking like lightheartedly about Avatar The Last Airbender and um, Avatar 
My favorite um, show. Your favorite show is one of my favorites, <laughs> too. Um, and loving um, Katara and Zuko. I'm a Zatara fan. I'm like Zuko and Katara all the way. And then that kind of like spinning into people literally being angry at me because they said Zuko is a symbol of colonialism and you are um, supporting colonial. <laughs> 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 and just wanting... and you know, then that's sparking a conversation of redemption arcs and whether people are allowed to be redeemed. And I, I just wanted to talk about Avatar The Last Airbender. That's all I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, a lot of conversations about marginalized characters in fiction, right, are sort of just about their presence in the fiction, the importance of them being represented. Um, but obviously in your book, that's not, like, you're starting from a position in which that, that's a given, right? They're going to be there uh, and there's going to be a continuum of characters and personalities. So what are some of the ideas about these characters and the situations they find themselves in that are the most fun for you and the most intriguing to you to write about? Right. Um, Well, you know, I think that it's been like a multi-stage process. First, I usually write um, a book, like for, like, you know, there there actually kind of was a point where I felt like I was the only one, um, even though I wasn't there. I'm sure there were other authors. It was kind of, it's kind of like these books are all in a conversation with each other. So King and the Dragonflies, for example, I felt needed to kind of spark a conversation about what it means to be intersectional, um, have intersectional identities of black and queer um, for the middle grade space, because I had never quite seen that for a cis male protagonist. Um, Hurricane Child did something similar for a cis girl who's black and queer as well. Um, So I felt like I had to even just start the conversation and kind of like explain things for the audience in general, because um, it might not necessarily have been seen on such a wide, broad scope. And now that I've done that, and Felix Ever After was similar, um, one of the first black, queer, demi-boy, trans protagonists in YA, I felt like I had to write, kind of like create the pavement for myself to say, okay, here's the foundation here is what it means to be trans for me. Here's what it means to be queer for me. Here are all these different conversations. Mm -hmm. And now I get to write, (laughs) I felt like I had to put that foundation in. And now I get to write books. Um, I get to write books where it's more about these teenagers and these kids who have these identities and get to just be, and don't, it doesn't have to be about their identity. And identity can come and play a part, of course, in the same way that being black and queer and trans plays a role in my everyday life in terms of like how people's people react to me but it isn't my entire existence and I can find joy through my identities but I also find joy through other aspects and I get to just kind of like explore more I think Hmm. do you feel pressure to have your characters be good I mean Felix right Felix ever after for example Mm -hmm. you know is kind of Mm self-centered um um catfish is somebody at some point like um, you know like do you like you felix is just he is just a teenager right yeah yeah just a a being a teenager but do you feel any added pressure because felix is historically speaking a very unique and specific character yeah um, you know, I did not until I saw reactions to Felix that were hmm. very, exactly as you said, um, self, you know, he is a self-centered character, but it was always from the perspective of that's like a negative thing. He is like too annoying. He's too this, he's too that. And that again reminded me of how I've always been treated my entire life as a black queer trans person. It's always, um, we just don't get that space to just be. Um, I was thinking a lot about Simon versus the homo sapiens agenda in response 
Similarly, Simon made a lot of mistakes. He was manipulative. He treated his friends not so great, but he is one of the most beloved characters, but he's also white. So mm. that um, that really just made me uh, think also about, you know, the craft of writing. You're actually you're not supposed to, but one of the common um, aspects of writing is that you actually have characters that make a lot of mistakes, are not quote-unquote great, <laughs> don't have the best personalities, because they actually right. have to learn, like they have to grow, that's the point. Felix made all these mistakes and he had to learn and grow to become who he is by the end of the book. Um, but we're not, as a black person, queer trans, he wasn't given that space to actually be able to grow because um, we're just not given that space as we should be. So it was interesting for me to see that parallel between like in within writing we're so, we're not given that space characters aren't given that space in the real world we're not given that space again i was given detention i was the only black kid given detention in my classroom mm -hmm. you know so it's kind of like all these different parallels that i kept um seeing and experiencing and that was actually the spark to my next book where um it's called lark and kasim star revolution my next ya it's actually about a black queer, non-binary kid, Lark, who is a people pleaser because they really want to escape that, um, that unfairness, that judgment about who they're allowed to be because of all of their marginalizations. And they're very aware of the fact that they're not going to be given the same chance as white cis straight people, but they are, um, they will, by the end of the book, will need to heal their desire to like people please and to just, um, make everyone around them happy because they don't want to deal with the same level of anger and judgment that Felix, for example, had to deal with. Once again, that was Case and Calendar, the author of many, many middle grade and YA novels, including Felix Ever After, which we were just talking about, and the middle grade novels King and the Dragonflies and Hurricane Child, our conversation was part of NPR's collaboration with the Library of Congress National Book Festival. For information and more author interviews, visit loc.gov bookfest. And y'all, that is our show. You can follow us on Twitter and IG. We're at NPR Code Switch on both those platforms. You can email us at codeswitch at npr.org if email is more your thing. And subscribe to our newsletters at newsletters.npr.org slash codeswitch. This episode was produced by Jess Kung and edited by Leah Danella. A shout-out to the rest of the Code Switch Massive, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Kamara Devarajan, Alyssa Jong-Perry, Christina Kala, Steve Drummond, and Sam Yellowhorse-Kessler. Our art director is L.A. Johnson. I'm Gene Demby. Be easy, y'all. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands. But because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at BetterHelp.com slash NPR to get 10% off your first month. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.